influence on us. And so we, we tend to have that in the back of our minds. So we should, we should want to make sure the people we're spending most of the time around with or have uh, would have a positive influence on us and our lives on the people uh, around us. So, so then we think, about, we think about the church. Think about people in the church. And I can say that because it looks like you showed up for church. So, well, so what does that mean? What does it mean that we should you know, want to um, spend time around people that have a positive influence? And, and our, sort of our knee-jerk reaction is, our, our normal sort of response to thinking about, I don't want to get caught up with the wrong crowd. Well, what that means is, I need to avoid the world and spend time with churchy people. And that makes sense. I guess that does seem to sort of be logical. Maybe that uh, would apply, or maybe there might be some occasions where that would make sense. But our passage today actually says, no, actually, I'm talking about church people. I'm talking about the people in the church. I'm not talking about what's out there. I'm talking about thinking through what are the entanglements in the church that we need to think about. What is it that brings us together, and what is it that should uh, bring us together? What is it, if a church is coming together, a church should ask, why? Why did I show up and gather together with a, a, a group of people? And what the Bible is going to challenge us is, is this. If you're getting together and saying, I'm a church, I'm with the church, I'm a part of the church, and you're not gathering for church reasons, that's a troubling entanglement. What, what we want to do is, if we're going to call ourselves a church and say we're a part of the body of Christ, we should be gathering and connecting with one another for reasons that connect us with what God is doing through the gospel. So there's two parts of this we're going to look at. First is we're going to say, what do we have in common? And second part of this is we're going to wonder is, what do we owe each other as a part of being the body of Christ? And we're going to use this example within 1 Corinthians as a way of reminding ourselves what it means to be a body of believers. And, 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 the, and the church in Corinth is much like any church. It's, and that's why our subtitle for the study in 1 Corinthians is real people, real stuff, really good news because they like us they're they're dealing with real life and and as we read in this text this morning this isn't we're not playing around this is real stuff that's going on so what does it mean to be a body of believers what do we have in common and what do we owe one another let's look at verses 9 through 11 troubling entanglements what do we have in common think about this another sort of example maybe you've had to go to class for the first time first day of class remember at, a, at school for the first time, maybe it's middle school, high school, college, and you, uh, if, if you have to do this, you know, you, normally your schedule has a number of classes, so throughout the day you have to make your way to different classrooms. Are you familiar with this? I still remember my first day at Hedrick Junior High, back then it was Hedrick Junior High, I was late, of course, and you're supposed to look up the class you were in, and no, everybody was already in class, I don't know why I was late, and I looked at it, I was like, okay, I I was expecting a room number, 250, 257, 138. And, and the room number was A1. What? I got a steak sauce for a room number. I don't, <laughs> what is this? Turns out this is a, a room in, out in the back in the parking lot. It's a little cabin because it was a, an electronics class I was taking. But anyway, I said, what in the world? And I couldn't find it. But anyway, so maybe you've been in that situation. So you make your way to the classroom and you sit down and you're listening to the instructor and you're getting all your things ready. And, you're, and about 10 minutes in, you go, I am in the wrong class. This is not the class I signed up for. I have gone to the wrong room and you're sitting there with a room of people attentively soaking in the brilliance of this professor or teacher and you're thinking, what are my options? I can sit here and just act like this is my class, seem interested, but never come again. Or I could just get up and leave and everybody will know I'm that person that went to the wrong class and then I have to go to the actual class and show up late. Or I can ask for permission to go to the bathroom. That, these are all options. So, but you're sitting there and, and all of a sudden you're sitting in a room and you say, I don't have a reason to be with these people. And that's what we think about in the church is we say, why would I, am I in the right class? Am I supposed to be here? In the church, when we think about why are we the body of Christ, why do we come together as a body of believers either for church on Sunday or at any time throughout a given week, we must recognize the Bible says we, we need to be true to those things which bring us together. We need to be true to those things which bring us together and, 
It is impossible for us to rightly come together on things that drive us apart. If we're going to say we're the body of Christ in this particular place, then we say we must be true to the things that bring the body of Christ together, and we must recognize it's impossible to gather together around things that, that really drive us apart. And that's what's happening in the church in Corinthians, and it's worth thinking about. Verse 9. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So it appears Paul had written a prior letter to the people in Corinth, and he had to let them know they should not be spending time with people who are sexually immoral. And he feels at this point that he needs to provide clarification about that instruction. It seems appropriate that he would provide that guidance for a group of people who have gotten saved out of the culture in Corinth a call to sexual morality would be very different than the culture around them. And what he is saying, since you've been saved out of one way of life into a new way of life, it might seem to make sense that you wouldn't intentionally spend time with people who would take you back to your old way of life. And he, he says it's good, it's good to avoid exposure to things that would draw us away from our Savior Jesus. In fact, over in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, 14. Let me just read it. It's very, very brief. He says this as a command. Therefore, my beloved, beloved, flee from idolatry. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So when you think about things that are idolatrous, he says, I want you on purpose to structure your life in a way where you avoid things that will draw you back into worshiping false gods. That makes, that's good advice, isn't it? If, you, if someone has been in a, in a, a life of idolatry, he's saying, well, don't go to those places which are going to draw you back into it. So this makes good sense. And he says this about idolatry, and it seems he's also talking this way about sexually, uh, sexual immorality. We must remember the context, though. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5, if you have your copy of Scripture there. It's actually reported there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that's not even tolerated among pagans, a man has his father's wife. So we have to remember the context here. What he's talking about is a situation within this church where someone within this body of believers is living a life of sexual immorality. This isn't someone struggling with sexual immorality. This is a person who is doing something immoral and claiming that it is moral and God accepts him. Claiming it's the right thing to do. And what the, uh, Paul is saying, no, that's not, that's not right. And, and so what he is saying, he wants to provide clarification to the body of believers. He said, yeah, in my former letter, I told you not to, not to hang out with people who are uh, sexually immoral, who are living a life of immorality and calling it uh, good. But now he wants to clarify and provide uh, specifics about what he meant. And you could just imagine as he, as he is writing this, or at least dictating it to his buddy who's probably writing it, he's going... I can't believe I have to make this clarification. That's, that's what he's thinking. Now, then he tells the guy writing it, don't put that down. They, they won't take that right. But are, and the guy's writing it. He said, do we really have to tell them this? Yeah, we really have to tell them this. They really are that thick-skulled. They don't get it. So, but now he provides this clarification to them. Look at verse 10. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. So he says, look, look, I told you, don't, don't spend time with the sexually immoral. And so the first Corinthians, or the Corinthians, also the first Corinthians, <laughs> first Corinthian Baptist Church, I think is what they're called. Let's call that, go, go there. And uh, he said, he said so they, they said, oh, okay, well, I don't, don't spend time with the sexually immoral in the world, but apparently spend time with sexually immoral people in the church. Like, so this seems to make sense to them. So as long as somebody calls himself a believer, then we have that commonality. Where you, you, we have it in common that Jesus saved us from our sin, and, and you do immorality? I don't. That's good. But at least we have Jesus in common. And Paul is saying, no, 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 that's not what I was talking about. How could you disassociate from the sexually immoral in the world? How are you going to buy your milk? How are you going to get your car fixed? How are you going to go to the doctor? He said, no, the, the, we are in the world. This is where we live. We have to, we have to function within the world. And he, he was never intending for them to disassociate from, 
from life in the world around them. And what he wants them to think about, what is it you have in common? Okay, so what is it you have in common with your grocery store? I don't know where you shop for groceries, but what is it you have in common with your grocery store? I'll tell you what I have in common. I walk in the store, we have, two, we have a transactional relationship. I want some food. They want some money. We have this transaction in common. As long as we have this transaction in common, I will come to your grocery store. And I will give you your money, my money, and you will give me your food. And I keep doing that over and over. Anybody else on this train? Okay, you get it. If you showed up with the grocery store and there was no food, would you give them your money? No, because the commonality is gone. That which what we, that what we had in common is, is no longer in common. When I walk into the grocery store, I don't walk up to the manager and say, I need to know if you're sexually immoral. Because I don't buy groceries from people who sin. That sounds silly. That's, what, that's how the Corinthians were applying this. No, understand our commonality. In the world, we have all kinds of commonalities. We have people we do business with. We have employers we work for. We have employees we work with. We have family members we, uh, we associate with. We have, we have uh, civic responsibilities that we attend to. We may have all these things in common while at the same time not having Christian values and belief in common. The question is, why are we getting together? I get together with my dentist to have my, my teeth cleaned. I get together with my grocer to buy groceries. I get together with my mechanic for him to tell me the repairs cost more than the car is worth. That's the, the terms of that relationship. That's the commonality. What is we have in common in the body of Christ? It's Christ. That's our connection. What do we have in common is the good news of the gospel and what Paul is calling us to do in in life within the body of believers is do the same thing we do in the other areas of life recognize the point of commonality which is the gospel of Jesus Christ good news that Jesus saves sinners like us and what the people in Corinth were doing is getting together for reasons other than that and you have to say it that way because if you can gather together with somebody and the point of commonality is sexual immorality that's opposed to the good news of the gospel because this is what he has told us the last several passages God, the gospel saves us from sin it doesn't save us so we can sin and so he's saying what do you have in common and if the body of believers is gathering for reasons other than the gospel that's a troubling entanglement that's an unusual reason to get together and he's calling us as believers to live consistent with our point of commonality. Look at the list. Of course, sexual immorality bothers us. That seems offensive. But look at other things he wants us to think about. He also talks about, do not, uh, uh, what, what's he say? What wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral, immoral people, not meaning the sexually immoral of the world, but also, not just that, greedy people, swindlers, idolaters. Because if you're going to avoid these kinds of people, you would have to go out of the world. But then look at what his emphasis is here in verse 11. He says, but, but to gather together as a body of believers and have your point of commonality, these things, sexual immorality, greed, and idolatry, and swindling, that means we're gathering together opposite of the gospel. Christians coming together while living contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ is troubling. That's what he's saying. It's not troubling that the world is acting contrary to Jesus. Is that troubling? No, that's, world. that's the world. What's troubling is a body of believers coming together and acting in ways and behaving together in ways that are contrary to the body of Christ. The question we have to ask ourselves as believers is, what are we coming together for? What are we coming together for? And are there things in my life and the life of the people around me which gets in the way of why are we coming together? What is the reason for coming together as a body of believers? Have you thought of that? I mean, you got up, you took a shower maybe, at least rinsed off, came down, why in the world? Why in the world do all this? Why go to all the trouble? 
And the answer is quite clear. We come together around the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what he is saying is to come together for other reasons doesn't make any sense. In fact, look what he says. Verse 11, it's rather startling. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. Now I see it. I know you're thinking. You say, well, I know all these people. I got several of these in my row. I, I, and you say, I know what it is. You, you got to check all the boxes, and then, and then. So if you hit all of them, no, he's breaking things down. These are all things. These are. If somebody says, I am in the Lord, and I am this way, he said, you should hang out with that person. A couple of qualifiers on this, because I, I know you look worried. Number one, these are people. What he's talking about is people who are saying. I believe in Jesus, I love Jesus, and I believe that sexual immorality fits with the love of Jesus. That sure, I can have my wife and a side girlfriend. That fits because of the grace of Christ. And, and so it's not people, we're not talking about people who are struggling with sin. Who are trying, they're in the fight and want to get over whatever sin they struggle with. These are people who have decided that there is room within the gospel for sin. There's room in the gospel for greed. There's room in the gospel for drunkenness. There's room in the gospel for being a reviler, an insulter, someone who just makes fun of everybody around them. And, and what Paul is saying is, actually, no, the, the gospel is clear. You are saved from these things, not to these things. And if somebody is going to say these things are okay for a believer, then we need to recognize, well, you're not getting together with us around the gospel because you're living in a way that has set the gospel aside. And his, his language is quite strong. He says, don't associate with anyone and don't even eat with such a one. So there's some cultural things going on here. We, first of all, we need to recognize he wasn't saying that when you see someone in this situation that you cross the street or you smack them. So, for example, let's look at an example of this. This is 2 Thessalonians 3, 14 through 15. He is telling the Thessalonian church a number of things. He finishes up in verse 13. As, you, as for you, brothers, don't grow weary in doing good. Verse 14. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person. Write it down, I guess. Have nothing to do with him. That's kind of stark that he may be ashamed. Now, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So what we tend to do, so the way, the way Paul is framing this is he's saying, look, when, when he's talking about association in terms of what does it mean to come together as a body of believers? He said, but don't treat them as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So you have somebody in the church, you have somebody that you know who is a believer, says, I'm a believer, but uh, I think God leaves plenty of room for sexual immorality and it's not a problem. And so you say, what you would say to that person is, like, you and I have a lot in common. It's not Jesus, though. And I'm, don't ask me to pretend like we do. But it doesn't mean that you can't go to that guy's shop and, and buy bait for your fishing gear. It doesn't mean you can't take your car to him as a mechanic. It doesn't mean when you see him in the grocery store, you can't say, hey, how you doing, Bob? It, it, it's not some form of uh, social ostracism, which is intended to isolate this person in such a way that they have no social connection. It's just a way of saying... I am not going to pretend that you and I have Jesus in common. And don't ask me to pretend we do. So if you're going to show up to church, I'm going to say, are you here to hear about Jesus and get saved? But I'm not going to pretend like you and I have a, a, a relationship in Jesus in common. But what this doesn't mean is that you're going to uh, post a thing on Facebook and say, to all my, I no longer associate with Bill Smith. I, because I will not talk to him. I won't look at him. I will avert my eyes. And if I see his car, I'm going to slit its tires. You know, what, uh, the, this notion of this, uh, Paul is discussing here a, a gentle way of being honest with somebody that's designed to say, we want you in community, but our community is about Jesus. And if you're not about Jesus, then I don't have a, that's what we're about. That's what we do. And that's what he's talking here. Uh, back then that's why he says don't even eat with such a person so he's not saying if you're sitting in the restaurant enjoying your meal and all of a sudden he gets a table at the meal across the way you say check please i have to leave 
This was a, a form, when this, this meal that he's describing here is saying two people that together, get together and that are agreeing, we're in fellowship on things. And we're affirming each other as brothers in the Lord. And he's saying, no, you don't want to affirm that you're a brother in the Lord or somebody says Jesus has room for sexual immorality or Jesus has room for greed. This is just honesty about why we're getting together. We have a connection, and the reason we have a connection as a body of believers, what do we have in common, is Jesus saves sinners like us. And that's why we get together. That's our hope. That's our, we just sang a song, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is my hope. This is my hope, the blood of Jesus. And if somebody comes in and says, well, yeah, the blood of Jesus is nice, but my hope is this. We say, well, that's good for you, but that's not why we're here. That's not why we're connected. We're connected over the gospel, and I'm not going to pretend like we have other things in common. Now, this, maybe this seems silly to you. Does this seem silly? Like, this is, this is level 101. Everybody knows this. Let's get together on the thing we have in common, which is Jesus saves sinners like us. This isn't vile mistreatment of others. This isn't vindictiveness. This isn't a, I'm better than you. It's just as simple. What you and I thought we had in common, we don't. I want to have that in common with you. And it's a, a, gentle, a gentle call to bring one another to restoration where we say we want to have what in common together the hope of the gospel. It's interesting about this list here that some things we find offensive or not. So if somebody came to our, our church, let's say somebody came to our church and they were openly sexually immoral. And I got up here one day and said, Bill Smith, sorry, Bill, if you're here, um, sexually immoral you know so I don't know why he's coming but he doesn't have anything in common with us that's weird I don't know that I would do that but say that happened say well you know that makes sense that makes sense a guy can't come to church if he says that kind of stuff is right that's gross but look at the list what about reviler you know what a reviler is it's somebody who makes a habit of insulting people you know somebody who, who tends to tear other people down that's what it is. It's somebody who's constantly bringing up negative things about others, either false or true, or, or exaggerating the way in which others behave in a way of tearing down their reputation, using words to try and taint the reputation of others, either accurately or inaccurately. Now, most of us would say, if somebody says, well, why isn't so-and-so coming anymore? I said, well, we had a conversation with him. We told him if he's going to keep insulting people, he should find another church. I know what a lot of you would say. You say, that doesn't seem like that big a deal. It's in the list. I'm sorry. I, I, so we, one of the things is that we, we tend to do is there are certain sins that really get us hot and bothered. Like, oh yeah, that's terrible. That's terrible. We need to make sure nobody's doing that. There's other sins like greed. Greed is what our economy runs on. And, and, and it doesn't bother it us at all if somebody is behaving in a, in a greedy fashion. And, and, we, and we don't even have that. Most of us haven't even taken the time to discern the difference between greed and industriousness. And, and we haven't even taken the time to think about what's the difference in that between attitude and, and action. And, but when it comes to sexual immorality, yeah, kick them out. They shouldn't be here. So one of the things the gospel should shed light on our heart is we look at sin differently than God does. Because all sin bothers God because all sin killed us. All sin brought us judgment. And we need to be open about the realities of why we get together. We get together because we love Jesus. He saves sinners like us and we want to be more like him. And the best place to do that is together. Troubling entanglements. Why do we get together? What do we have in common? So, if our connection in the gospel is what is supposed to bind us together, what responsibilities do we have to one another? Let's look at verses 12 and 13. I'll read them for you. None of these verses, as we say, are verses you are going to have cross-stitched on your pillows. What do I have, what, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Wow, this is rough. Let's start with the context again. What we're thinking about is the body of believers. Take your time later. We're not up to it yet. We will be sometime next year. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The context is the body of Christ. 
The body of Christ is intended to be understood as a group of interdependent people with various gifts and abilities and and work of the gospel in us where we are interdependent on one another to see what God is going to do in a local community. That's the context of a body of believers. It's not a group of separate bodies coming together. It's it's one body with uh, interdependence. Uh, Back in March of 2021, a big container ship got stuck in the Suez Canal. You remember that? The Ever Given? Ever? It it had a weird name. Every time I saw the picture on the news, I thought, that's basically a giant clogged toilet. That's what you got. A kid has, has put his ship model down the toilet. Anybody have a kid do this? And, and now the toilet doesn't flush. Nothing's getting through. And nothing's, and it's stuck. I mean, in other words, what was it, six days, nine days? It was stuck. Uh, $9 billion a day in cargo didn't go through the Suez Canal while this toilet was stuck, or the ship was stuck in the, in the canal. They saw price increases on many commodities during this, and which is normal. It's the way supply and demand works, you know. Stuff's not getting through. Ships were taking the long road, which is around Africa. That's a long uh, trip. The, what about the, the, the important thing? What about the 100, listen, 130,000 sheep that were on cargo ships Waiting. I had no idea until I did research on this. There were 130,000 sheep on cargo ships waiting to get through the canal. Now, I don't know if you know anything about sheep. Number one, stuff needs to go into them. Uh, Water and food. Secondly, when you put water and food into a sheep... (laughs) So you got 130,000 sheep... Because if, if, if I'm not doing my part... It's not happening for somebody else. And that's the way the body is designed to work. For everybody to be involved, using their gifts for the good news of the gospel to be proclaimed to the world around us. And that is is what we do. That's the body of Christ. But we have become so used to the body not even being able to walk down the street that we don't see the significance of the interdependence falling apart the way we did when that canal goes down. So the question is, what do we owe each other? For the mutual benefit of one another and the, and the work of the gospel through the body of Christ, it's our, it's our duty to make known the things within the body of Christ that contradict us. That's what he's saying here. We depend on one another to, to say, look, I see something here that goes sideways to the gospel of Christ. Verse 12 and the first part of verse 13. What do I have to do with judging outsiders, Paul says? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, he says, the beginning of verse 13. Number one, people who don't believe in Jesus, don't worry about it. God will judge those who reject Jesus. We don't want anybody to reject Jesus. We shouldn't have that desire in our heart. The Apostle Paul says, my desire would be that everyone would come to know Jesus by faith for forgiveness of sin. However, some will reject Jesus. And they don't face us. Those who reject Jesus one day will have to stand before the Lord and give an account for their rejection of Christ's hope of forgiveness. That's not our job. Our job is to proclaim the gospel, and if they reject the gospel, then they will stand before the Lord and give an account for rejecting Christ. However, we have to be aware as a body of believers that it's critically important that when we come together that we understand what brings us together and what will tear us apart. And he's saying, so we have a place in, relationship, in loving relationship with the people around us to be willing to say, what's going on here? What's going on here? This, is, this isn't quite the way it's supposed to be. And when he's talking about judging here, he is not talking about putting ourselves on a pedestal. So say, for example, you've got a bum knee. Anybody have a bum knee? Yeah, we all got bum knees. Right? I mean, nowadays you go to the orthopedist, they sell them in a two-pack. So you know what? We'll just give you both. Let's just be done with it. And you should ask them, two-for-one deal? That's what I, you know, just make sure you get a good deal. And so you, you got a bum knee, you go in to the x-ray, and they x-ray your knee. And when the x-ray technician takes the x-ray and they show you the image, do you say to them, 
Why are you judging me? Why are you judging my knee? Do you, have you ever said that to the x-ray tech? Some of you are like, yeah, that's I say it to him every time. The x-ray doesn't tell us what's valuable. The x-ray doesn't, because the x-ray tech is telling us something about our knee does not mean the x-ray tech thinks they're better than us. Oh, you think you've got good knees? I mean, they're not saying that. All the x-ray is supposed to do is tell us what's wrong with the connection. There's something wrong with the connection here. It's not an evaluation. So what we've done is we've decided as we rightly should because the way Jesus he says don't judge each other meaning don't look down on your brother and say you're here and I'm here that's an evaluation of value you're less than I'm more than that's one kind of judgment that's assessment as judgment what he's talking about here is saying here's what's true there's a connection that's supposed to be here and it's broken because you say immorality is good and it's not because you say idolatry is good and, and it's not because you say drunkenness is good, but, it, but it's not. See, it's not evaluative. It's just, here's what is. And what Paul is saying, within the church, we should be willing to say, there's supposed to be a connection here in the gospel. The connection isn't there because of what's going on in your life. There's something in your life that isn't consistent with the truth of the gospel. And we're called to, when we see that, to have in close relationship, to be willing to talk with one another about that what do we owe we owe each other the truth from time to time to say i want to help you and there's a connection here that's that's broken look at verse 13 god judges those outside purge the evil person from among you now he's quoting there from Deuteronomy 17, 7. What he's saying is back then in the body of, in the, in, the, in the people of Israel, if somebody was intentionally going to violate the law and live contrary to the law of Israel, they said, well, that person's not an Israelite. Kick him out. You can't live in Israel and call yourself an Israelite if you're not going to be an Israelite. Kick him out. So he's using that language to say, if you want to be a member of the body of believers and part of the body of believers, then, then the reason we gather is Jesus. And if you're living saying that your life is the way Jesus wants you to live when it's a life of sin, then we should be willing to tell each other the truth. This makes sense so many other places. I don't know why this bothers us in the church. I can tell it bothers you. Let's say you're at an AA meeting. I know you're trying to act like you don't know what that looks like. So either you've gone or maybe you've gone with a family member. And if you haven't, I might even suggest you should go anyway. Might be some stuff you can learn there. So you go to an AA meeting, and you're sitting around. You say, hi, my name is Greg. I'm an alcoholic. You know how it starts, right? See, I got you. I knew you'd been. Um, and then there's a place where you get coffee. And so a guy walks into the AA meeting. Hey, Bill. Sorry, again, I'm sorry, Bill. You got picked on all day. Walks in, Bill. Now, Bill's job for the AA meeting is he brings the beer. That's what he does. It's his thing. I mean, some guy brings the coffee. Another guy brings the cigarettes. Another guy brings the cookies. Coffee and cigarettes and cookies are fine. Beer is not. Why is beer not okay in an AA meeting? Is there a reason for this? I mean, to me, it seems like that'd be a great place to get good customers. Some of you don't even want to laugh at that. It seems offensive. It makes perfect sense. If a guy walks into an AA meeting and says, I'm bringing the beer, we would immediately say that makes no sense. Why? Because of the reason we're gathering. We have, a, we have an intention here, a purpose, a plan, a hope. And you coming in, you are living contrary on purpose to everything that's supposed to be happening here. And none of us would be bothered if Bill walked in and said, I brought the beer. Nobody would be bothered if someone said, Bill, get out of here. You're not here for what we're doing. If you want to be here for what we're doing, that's awesome, but don't bring your beer. Would anybody be bothered by that? No, especially if we have a family member in that group that we're hoping is getting help, would we? We wouldn't. We'd say, they're bringing what to your group? In fact, if I heard about that and I had a family member, and I'd, I'd go to Bill's house. Say, I don't want you in this group. I got someone there who needs help. And they don't need you coming in there and messing it up. Because they've got a reason they're gathering, and you're doing it opposite. And yet in the body of Christ, we say, why do we get together? Because we're sinners saved by grace, and we're not home yet. And boy, if you're like me, this is not an easy run, is it? This is not an easy run. 
There are more, hill, more valleys than hills, and the hills are short-lived, and the struggles are real, and the last thing I need or you need is someone coming in and saying, no, there's no struggle here, it's fine. It doesn't work. We come together for a reason, to help each other be like Jesus till the day we stand before him. And all Paul is saying is if somebody doesn't want to live that way, then what, what are you doing here? Go, go do your thing somewhere else. There's plenty of places to live for the world, but you're not, you don't have to do that here and call yourself a brother. Let me look at a couple of other verses. We'll do this relatively quickly. You're hoping. Let me look at a couple of other verses because I want to show you kind of the context of this idea of what does it mean to help one another see the truth. Matthew 18, there's a common one, the one you're familiar with. Matthew 18, 15 through 17, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If he does not listen to you, take a couple others with you, that every charge will be established by evidence. If he refuses to listen, tell the church. If he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. All you're saying, all he's saying there is like, go tell your buddy what's wrong. If he agrees with you, that's awesome. If he doesn't agree with you, then get to a point and say, well, what are you doing here? Why, why are you, why are you here? This is what we do. We say no to sin, yes to Jesus, and we struggle through that. Why are you saying yes to sin and telling us it's okay? That's all he's doing here. Now, here's the thing. Some of us get really worked up over this passage. Here's my experience. I would say in the course of, of my life, when we've had occasion to sit down with somebody, and this is always in loving, close relationship, not some stranger you don't know. In the occasions where I have had someone talk to me or I've, I've had to talk, I can think of one time, and I'm just trying to rack my brain, I can think of one time in my entire life where somebody told me to shove it. You, you know? And I'm using the polite word. I... And shit, I'm racking my brain. You say, well, how many times do you do this? Three or four times a week. It's great. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> almost every time, I can only think of one occasion, almost every time where I have had someone come to me and say, you know what? I see this. Or when I've had a occasion, hey, you know what? I see this. They say, you know what? You are absolutely right. Absolutely right. That, I mean, this is what happens. So sometimes you get so worried about what's the, what, what are the steps? Let me tell you what. If you are willing to be honest with the people in your life about what's going on in your life and what's going on in their life, you're never going to go to steps. You're going to share with others, and, every, and you're going to say, you know what, you're right. I am kind of mouthy. You know what, you're right. I do drink too much. You know what, I'm right. I shouldn't have gone to that movie. That was stupid. You know, that's how this works. That's what loving community uh, looks like. Uh, look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 2. I think I've got a whole bunch of verses, so I'm going to go quick. Philippians 4, verse 2, Paul says this, I entreat Euodia and Syntyche to get easier names to pronounce. No, he, <laughs> I entreat Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. What is that? That's the first step of Matthew 18. He says, you know what, ladies? I get it. You're not getting along. You've got an argument going on. Agree in the Lord. So this is just simply him. This is where he's coming in and gently saying, this is the first thing coming in gently saying, you know what? There's a disagreement here. It's probably in a disagreement about things not related to the Lord. And he's saying, I'm not telling you to agree on those things. I'm telling you to agree in the Lord. Then what does he tell his buddy to do? Yes, I also ask you, true companion. Now, true companion there is probably their name. It's probably a, a, the name of the individual was, was true companion help these women and that guy was like thank you Paul really appreciate that buddy he was he was being challenged to to bring accountability that these two ladies would find their commonality in Jesus and set aside their petty differences this is what this is what the body of Christ does for each other these two ladies probably had a contentious relationship and in the church it was destroying their own joy of connection in the body of Christ and Paul, for their benefit and the benefit of the body, is saying to them and to this other uh, friend, saying, I want you to come together and help each other to say yes to gospel commonality and to set aside the other things. That's a gentle accountability towards making the gospel what brings us together. Do you see what he does there? Okay, Colossians 4.14. 
Paul, at the conclusion of this letter, saying, bringing greetings from another people, he says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. Luke, of course, is the author of the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles, as does Demas. Okay, just make note of this. Colossians, he says, I greet you from my buddy, my homie, Demas. Not for long. Philemon 23. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner of Christ, sends you greetings. So do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. Still, we're still good, right? Here we go. 2 Timothy 4.10. 2 Timothy was the last book the Apostle Paul wrote. He probably knew that he was going to be martyred soon. He was going to be beheaded by Nero. And so he wrote this book. It's easier to write books with your head attached to your torso. So he wrote this book. When you read it, you need to keep in mind this is a book that the letter he has written really is his last words. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. So he just simply says, I need, what Demas and I had in common was the gospel of the Lord and the work of the gospel of the Lord. That commonality no longer exists. Demas has uh, traded in his love for, for Christ and the gospel and is instead pursuing the world. Paul here isn't being vindictive. He's not being mean. He's just saying what's true. The connection Demas and I had, we no longer have because he has decided that the connection we had isn't as valuable as the things of this world. So this isn't rude, it's not vindictive, it's just being honest about the relationships in his life. Okay, uh, three more. We got time. 1 Timothy 1.20. I know you disagree with me, but let's agree to disagree. 1 Timothy 1.20. Paul says this, holding faith in a good conscience, hold faith in a good conscience, and by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. So what, they, had a, they had faith, because you can't shipwreck faith you don't have. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan that they may not learn to blaspheme. So this Paul just basically say, look, we had this commonality in the gospel, but they have abandoned this faith, and I am praying that God might work in their life to bring them back to hope in the gospel. 2 Timothy 4.14. Are they on the screen or are you having to turn fast? Okay, good. 2 Timothy 4.14. Speaking of Alexander, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself. He strongly opposed our message. Okay, so these are things where Paul had believers in common and then that relationship, the, the commonality was gone because that person no longer claimed Christ as their hope. And so all we see Paul doing here is being honest about the connection. The connection we had is no more because they no longer are uh, pursuing life in the gospel. They've abandoned that. And that's our connection. That's the connection we have. Now, Paul's not saying you couldn't have connection with them for other things. You know, if he has to... Uh, buy something made of copper maybe copper maybe Alexander's the best one to do it but he's not going to pretend that he and Alexander have Christ in common because he has abandoned walking with the Lord now I want to contrast that with how Paul talks about the non-believing world okay Acts chapter 17 you'll have to turn to your, in your Bible to Acts chapter 17 verse 16 Paul was walking in Athens and his spirit was provoked within him this is Acts chapter 17 verse 16 because he saw that the city was full of idols. Now seeing how, how hotly he responded to these believers when they abandoned the gospel, how will he respond to non-believers who are not listening to the gospel? This is what's interesting. Down in verse 22, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, he said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. As I passed along and I observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as an unknown, this I will proclaim to you. Now why didn't he hotly call down from heaven the fires of heaven to destroy Athens and all their idols? Why not? That's God's job. God will, God will judge the unbelievers. Isn't that what he said in 1 Corinthians? So what's Paul's job? He wants to connect the hope of the gospel with those who don't have it. 
See, he's not pretending they have a case. He's just saying, okay, I'm going to try as best as I can connect the hope of Jesus to where you are at. If you reject that gospel, hey, that's your thing. You can stand before the Lord. Now, however, if somebody says, I'm a believer, I love Jesus, but I love sexual immorality or drunkenness or greed or idolatry, Paul will, will, will talk to that person in uncompromising terms. Agreed? But when he's talking with the world, he's going to do his best to connect the hope of the gospel with the place those people are in. That's his, that's his hope. How do I bring the gospel to the bear in the unbelieving world? But he's not, if believers are playing church, he doesn't have time for it. He doesn't have time for it. I might just say this, uh, just as an aside. Maybe the whole sermon's been an aside. It seems to me in modern times, we have become better at doing it the opposite way that we will spend lots of time explaining the why the world is going to hell in a handbasket and happily put up with believers who don't act like Jesus. It seems like we flipped it to me. And that, now, you can argue with me, and that's fine. You can be wrong. It seems like we flipped that at some point. We decided it was the job of the church to judge the world, but if somebody will say they prayed a prayer to Billy Graham rally 50 years ago, we will put up with anything that they do. And the Bible flips that. It says, if you're going to claim that Jesus is your hope, then the body of believers has a duty together to say, is he? Because here's what I see in your life. In loving relationship, here's what I see. What's going on here? Because this part of your life doesn't look like you're hoping in Jesus. And, but then when we talk about the world, our, our question should be, how do we bring hope uh, into the world? And that's what Paul did. That's what Jesus did, and I pray that we do that too. Troubling entanglements. What do we have in common? What do we owe each other? Three quick thoughts, and then we'll close. I'm skipping one. It's no good. We've already covered it. Second one, Marshawn Lynch. You heard of this guy? Not all of you. Okay, he used to play football for the Seattle Seahawks. Uh, when he would run, uh, he was large. I would get out of the way. They called it beast mode. That's, I'm just getting happy thinking about Marshawn Lynch. Man, great football player. <clears throat> he recently did an interview, and he discussed his relationship with former coach of the Seahawks, Pete Carroll, and former quarterback of the Seahawks, Russell Wilson. And here's what he said. I thought it was interesting. He said, listen, when you're part of a football team, one of the normal things is accountability. We hold each other accountable to do our job and to do it really, really well. I thought that was interesting. He said, that's the job. You show up. You're going to be in shape. You're going to know your place. You're going to do your job. And what bothered him was Pete Carroll didn't hold Russell Wilson accountable the same way he held everybody else accountable. This is why I think it's interesting. I bring up accountability in the church, and we get annoyed you know what, it is not your job to be up in my business. That's what all of us are thinking, aren't we? I'm bringing it up, and you're already annoyed at me. But Marshawn Lynch seems to think that is perfectly acceptable. In fact, not only acceptable, it helps him be better at what he does. Why does it bother us that one of the reasons we get together is we need one another calling each other back to the gospel? Why is that bothersome? Don't we need that? Yeah, we do. It's, in fact, just coming together on a regular basis helps remind us, what are we doing here? Are you, you're still in? Okay, good. I'm still in. That accountability is, is critically important. It's not a form of power. It's not a form of control. It's not a way in which we can manipulate one another. It's just a way of saying, we need each other to stay in this together. And God is going to use each other to challenge us. And, and he's going to use us to challenge others to press into loving Jesus and worshiping him with our life. So accountability. Uh, I don't think we should chafe at it. I think we should welcome it. Look for it in our relationships. Okay, last thing. Sin always asks this question. What can I gain that brings pleasure? Sin always asks this question. What can I gain that brings pleasure? The gospel always asks, what have I gained that I may give blessing? See the difference? Sin says, what can I have that will bring me pleasure? And pl there's lots of ways. Pleasure is, you know, 
pleasure as we might imagine, but also significance and importance and reputation. There's lots of things that bring us pleasure. So sin says, what can I have that will give me pleasure? Gospel says, what have I already gained that I may bless others? And one of the things the body of Christ, as individuals, we need to say, what is my connection with the body of Christ? What question am I trying to answer when I am a part of a, a church? Am I trying to say, what does the church provide to me? See, that's a sin question. That's, that's what we ask about stuff. What is, what is being here? Does it provide some form of pleasure to me? Relational connection, significance, importance. The gospel question is, having received Jesus, how do I bless others? That's the question a believer asks when they're a part of a body of believers. What has Jesus done for me? So what is my role in the body of believers? What do we have in common? What do we owe one another. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the love you have shown us in Christ. We thank you for the body of believers that when you called us into relationship with you, you did not call us into solitude and aloneness, but you called us into community. God, we recognize that we have taken lightly what it means to be a part of a community of believers. We pray, God, you would open our, high, our eyes and our hearts to what it means to have a relationship with others that can provide the opportunity for us to depend on one another, to depend on you as we help one another. God, we know that it is difficult to have relationships that are open and authentic, and we can't have those kind of relationships certainly with everybody. But God, we would pray in this body of believers, you would give us those group of people that we're connected with, where we have authentic relationships, where we, we trust each other enough to call each other to love you more. And God, we would pray that you would give us the joy of seeing one another know Jesus more. We also pray, God, that you would give us such effective ministry within this body of Christ that the light would also shine into our city and we would see the hope of Jesus come to those who need hope today. In Jesus' name, amen.